Good morning. Please rise for the reading of God's word. Matthew 2, 1 through 3 says this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being God with us. And in that we have hope and fulfillment. Father, I pray that um, we will learn to submit our lives to you just as the wise men that I will talk about um, did in the incarnation. We love you. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 2, 1 through 12. We're going to spend a considerable amount of time there today. And if you don't own a Bible, there's one um, under the seat in front of you, or if you're in the front row, under the front seat. Um, And if you don't own a Bible, please um, take one home. You could have it. Those are good things to, to read. Uh, So let's get this out of the way. I know most of you are all wondering, why is Aaron not speaking? And who is this? Well, the reason you are not seeing Aaron today is we are discussing the wise men who came to visit Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) And Element recognized uh, that we needed someone a little bit older, wiser, and more mature than Aaron to deliver this message. So here I am. My name is Jonathan G, and I am a deacon here at Element, and me and my wife, Michelle, get to lead a gospel community group. Did you guys have a good Christmas? Yeah. Good. Well, I love Christmas. My wife got me the best gift of all time, um, a griddle. I love breakfast, and so now I get to make breakfast all the time. If you love breakfast, come see me afterwards, and we'll arrange a breakfast date. So we are coming out of the liturgical season of Advent, the season of hope, love, peace, joy, the season of anticipation of the coming king. As most of you who know or who attended Element this past month know, we did a four-week sermon series on Advent to help build the anticipation and reflection to the coming of Christ. Advent culminates with Christmas, but now... Christmas has passed. And if you're like me, you think, great, Christmas happened, now what? What is so great about a baby being born in a manger? Thankfully, the church does not end with Christmas. Christmas is kind of like halftime in the liturgical calendar. There's a lot more to come. Um, Now we're entering into the, the liturgical season of Epiphany. If you were like me, you probably didn't know much about Epiphany. When Aaron initially asked me to teach on this, I thought he wanted me to teach on some really awesome ideas I have in the middle of the night. (laughs) It would have made for a wonderful sermon, but that's not actually what epiphany is. Epiphany means manifestation, or showing forth. It commemorates the wise men coming to worship baby Jesus. The season of Epiphany is actually the third largest holiday in um, the Eastern Church, Christmas, Easter, and then Epiphany. So it's a big deal. But it is the revelation of who God is to us. If you're here for Christmas Eve, the story of Emmanuel, God coming to earth with us. 
while the Roman church created and loved Advent, that um, anticipation of Christmas, the Eastern church loved Epiphany because it symbolized the proclamation of Christ's identity. So the season of Epiphany is highlighted by usually three to four instances. We're going to talk about three over the next three weeks. I get to talk about Journey of the Magi, or the Wise Men, uh, Jesus at the Temple when he was 12, and Donald gets to speak on that next week, and then Jesus' first public miracle of turning water into wine, um, and that's week three. So all three of these events are instances that God chose to reveal his nature to us. So how many of you, by a show of hands, have a nativity scene you put out during the Christmas season? Okay, a lot of you. And how many of those have wise men in that nativity scene? And is the wise men close to Jesus, like right in the manger? If you put him there, you're probably a heretic. Um, In reality, the wise men were not at the manger. They came probably two years after Christ was born. So we're going to read a large block of scripture today, and I'm going to talk about a few things that stood out to me. If you pay attention, it's going to look something like a traditional three-point sermon. So once again, turn to Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. When, uh, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I, too, may come to worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with mother, his Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So, what do we know about the Magi, or wise men? Are you guys ready? It's going to take a long time. We don't know hardly anything. All we know is that a few smart guys came from the east. We do not know how many. We don't know their names, but we know they followed a star, took an incredibly dangerous journey across country, found Jesus, gave him gifts that no two-year-old would enjoy, 
and fell on their faces and worshipped him. We're not even sure if these wise men are wise by traditional standards. Um, We call them wise because what they did is they had faith that moved them to Jesus. It is not their above average intelligence, their intellect, that for the reason the scripture calls them wise. They are called wise because they had faith, they went to Jesus, and they submitted and worshipped him. So although we don't know much about the Magi, most scholars agree that these men were most likely Babylonian and had some familiarity with the writings of the prophet Daniel. If you remember in the Coloring Book All-Stars, the series we did in the middle of the summer, um, we talked about Daniel and how he saved all the wise men from certain death from King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was a guy who was either really happy or really angry. The The Babylonian king had a dream and wanted the wise men to, A, tell him his dream, and B, interpret its meaning. Seems like a pretty tall order. Um, I'm a therapist by trade, and dream interpretation is part of the field, but telling people their dream, good luck. Um, nobody could do that, and nobody did it. And so the wise men were going to, to die. Um, thankfully, God used Daniel to tell the king his dream and interpret its meaning, thus saving all the magi. So that's kind of the historical background, the first time we hear of these magi or wise people. Now, a few hundred years later is where we are now. The first thing that stands out to me in this passage is God's promise to rescue and ransom people from all over the earth. In the Old Testament, God moved almost exclusively through the Israelites. Now, at the start of the New Testament, we see God calling people to him from outside of Israel. God is calling everyone, not just the Jews. And this is good news. It's why we are here today. This story highlights the fact that God is the one who saves us. God himself drew these men from the east to him. These wise men did not know anything really about who Christ was, but they followed a star and worshipped him. So most of us have heard the gospel through a herald, not a man named Harold, but a, a herald, a telling, a proclamation of the gospel. Uh, I vividly remember when I I first heard the gospel. My herald was Mrs. Kranz. She was my second grade teacher. I was at a Christian school, obviously. And she presented the gospel, which is the story that God became man in Jesus, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and promises to redeem us. For me, the gospel had instant weight. Um, Not because of the heart of the gospel, but because Miss Cran said nobody would graduate second grade until they accepted Jesus. <laughs> Being the good student I was, I thought, easy A. Passed second grade and moved on. Um, but heralding the gospel is something that is important. My wife, Michelle, recounts a story on Easter morning when she was around five or six, and her dad set her down on, on the bed and presented the gospel story. When we allow it, the gospel has immense weight because it is good news for everyone. And if you allow it, it'll change your life. But that was not the way it worked in the story of the Magi. God drew these people to him. The wise men had a herald of the Holy Spirit. So God himself drew people in. So the idea that the gospel is 
for everyone is prevalent all throughout scripture. In Psalm 86, 9, it says, All of the nations you have made and shall come to worship before you. O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Matthew 24, 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. The Great Commission, also in Matthew, Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a huge deal. God is so furious about all people being reached and experiencing salvation that he draws men from the east who have no real background in, in Christianity or Jewish thought into a place of deep and meaningful worship. In social psychology, um, there's an idea called in-group mentality versus out-group mentality, and you could trust me on this. I have a little bit of background in psychology since I'm a therapist. Um, and essentially, the in-group mentality states, we like those who are like them. Us. We favor people like us. We stick in our own group and get scared by people who can threaten our worldview. We actively despise people who are different from us. So God is so serious about salvation, he draws people in to help us overcome this in-group, out-group mentality. Not that this concept is relevant to any global issues today. But God is so good that he draws people to himself so we can overcome this in-group, out-group mentality because we are all one in Christ. The second thing that stands out to me is scary. It's the idea that you could know Jesus or know about Jesus but still not know him. Matthew 2, 3 through 4 says this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired to them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, which is Micah 5.2. So these men instantly knew the answer, but they didn't do anything. So to have a better understanding of this, um, by a show of hands, how many in the room have a Facebook? Okay. And keep your hands up if you have ever Facebook stalked someone. I bet it's a lot higher than that. I bet it's around 85 to 95% of the people uh, in this room. I myself have stalked a few people in, in my day. I don't post much, but I will watch what people are doing. Um, but for example, I have a fr um, my best friend in junior high was named Andrew. I haven't talked to him since my sophomore year in high school. But I know where he works. He's a real estate agent. He recently got married. Um, he, his family owns a Mexican restaurant in Orange County. So I know all these things about my, my friend, but I no longer know him. Facebook has created an illusion of intimacy. I feel close to Andrew even though I don't know him personally anymore. And the same can actually be true with how we view God. Here it says, the scriptures says, all the chief priests and scribes. These are the religious leaders. So in the context of element, think Aaron, Mike Harmon, Eric Derfudi. These are the elders. These are the people who are called to understand God's character and teach <laughs> as to shepherd them. And what do they do? 
they miss who Jesus is. When Herod asks, they quickly share the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. They know the answer, but it does not change them. They do not go to worship the wise men, or worship Jesus like the wise men, sorry. And why are the wise men wise? Once again, it's because they have faith that they go to Jesus and submit their lives to him. They're not wise because of their intelligence, but they're wise because they realize that they are not God. And they submit themselves to him. So a lot of us in this room are like the scribes and Pharisees. We know highlights of Jesus' life. Um, He was born in a manger, did some cool miracles, um, died on a cross, rose from the grave. Great. That's cool. Um, But that doesn't mean you're a Christian. Being a Christian does not mean, oh, I'm a Christian because I read the Bible. No, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean I was baptized as an eight-year-old, now I'm a Christian. Being American does not make you a Christian. Christianity is a radical submission to Jesus on a daily basis. So Jesus recognizes this issue with the Pharisees and with us, and in John 5, 39, he says this, and this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is Jesus arguing, so it's kind of hard to refute his logic. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He is essentially saying, you study the scripture in vain, because you are going to the scriptures because you think the scriptures themselves give you life. And yet the scriptures are telling you, I give you life. And you won't come to me to experience that. So stop settling for knowing about Jesus. And really start to submit your life to him. Because it's going to change everything. When you submit to Jesus, you're going to understand that you are not the center. And God is with us, and that's a good thing. So this brings me to point number three for all of you three-point sermon fans. We are saved by faith and by faith alone. We are not saved by anything we can bring to the table. And if you're like me, once again, you're like, well, John, the wise men kind of brought gifts to to baby Jesus. Um, But it's not that what saved them. They brought gifts to Jesus because they had genuine faith. And that faith resulted in an action. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we can't even take credit for our faith. God saves us, and God gives us the faith. Matt Chandler, the pastor of the village church in Texas, says this, You and I have nothing to lay at the Lord's feet except faith. Because we have nothing to boast in but his saving, majestic grace and mercy granted to us by faith alone. So serious is God about the incarnation that it is present 
here that he is going to redeem all people. It is by faith that the wise men risked their lives. Took an incredibly dangerous journey across first century world. It's very different. You can't hop on a plane. By faith, they stop in Jerusalem. They don't even know where Jesus is. They have to ask someone else. They say, where is he? By faith, they find him, and then they worship him. They see a two-year-old who is reliant upon his mother to feed him, care for him, and protect him. We see in the text that Jesus didn't be like, oh, hey, guys, what's up? We're waiting for you. He didn't call them by name. He didn't do anything. He did a normal two-year-old thing. And there's nothing that was intrinsically glorious about that. It's by faith that these men are wise. I know I am not a parent, but I have worked extensively with young children through Calm, which is a local nonprofit that provides therapy to young children and their families. I promise you, two-year-olds have never been the object of my worship. I had a client who was two, and he used to take off his diaper and throw his feces. Yes, I got hit with poop, which ultimately culminated in me getting pink eye, which I gave to my wife on her birthday. (laughs) Don't worry, Missy Hansen gave us meds, and now we're all better. But the only prayer I was praying during that time was a prayer of deliverance, that God would remove this child from my caseload. Two-year-olds are not majestic. There is nothing in a two-year-old Jesus that makes grown men fall on their faces and worship him. It is through faith alone. And mothers or fathers, if you are worshiping your two-year-old, it is misplaced. It will not bring fulfillment and help, and that's an idol, and I'm sorry. But after the wise men presented their gifts to Jesus, they did something that not a lot of us do. They went home. Most of us would sit around contemplating, talking endlessly about him, going to church, studying, spending our whole lives here in that village. But no, after seeing, worshiping, and giving their gifts, they went home. There is evidence to state that these wise men are really the first missionaries. They understood that Jesus was God and then went home to bring that message to other people. They didn't have all the theological concepts worked out, but they knew that through Jesus, there is hope. The gospel moved forward, not just with Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, but with strangers from a foreign land, and that is the reason why we are all here sitting in this room learning about Jesus. It's great news. Just like Israel and the wise men, which are once again wise because they are submitting their lives and going to Jesus. Wisdom and submission to Jesus will result in a meaningful action. But just like Israel and the wise men, God is faithful to us. He is a God who fulfills his promises. Our Father promises to redeem us. And God has promised us to deliver from our wandering, our searching, and ultimately our sins with the coming of Jesus, his death, and resurrection. 
In Christ, God shows that he is keeping his promises. God promises to be sufficient for all of us. If you look back at this year, it may have been a terrible year for you. I know for me and Michelle, the last quarter of the year was incredibly difficult. We found out we were pregnant, and we rejoiced. But a week after that, we miscarried. And that's been hard. But in that suffering and struggle, I have found more of the reliance on Jesus. I'm, me and Michelle are relearning how to submit our lives to him. And through that, I know he has us. So God is sufficient in the highs and the lows. God rejoices, and his heart is broken, though, when ours is. He is God with us. He knows us intimately. So before I leave today, though, I have some questions that I want you to think about over the next week. What gifts have you laid before the one who saved your soul? Have you understood that you were not saved by those gifts that you laid before Jesus, but by your faith alone? If you are someone who claims to worship Jesus as he has revealed himself, how are you then being a herald of him in your life? If you say you love Jesus and people looked at your life, would they say you are heralding Jesus or yourself? These are difficult things to process, but understand that just as the Father was good to Jesus, he is good to us. We have hope in the incarnation. So the band's going to come back up, the small band, and if you're going through a difficult time and feel as though God is distant from you, I am heartbroken for that. And it's my prayer that you will learn how to lean into your Father in a very real sense. Element Church offers something called redemption groups, um, which will be starting again in just over a month. Excuse me. Uh, Redemption groups are not the answer in and of themselves, but what they do is they help you learn how to make sense of your suffering, free you from the bondage of your sin, and ultimately help you to understand your story in light of God's story, which is the true and ultimate story. So if you have questions about this redemption group process, you can talk to me, Michelle, um, Brian and Susan Hook, Mike and Deb Harmon, or Eric and Terry Gerfruti. Um, And a few people have gone through it here, too. Maybe you could talk to them. And there's applications in the back. But this is one of the reasons why we come to communion week after week. We recognize that Christ's body was broken, his blood was spilled for us, and in that we have hope for fulfillment. Because he is with us. And it's my prayer that you guys don't just settle for knowing about who Jesus is, but it'll result in a meaningful submission daily to the heart of Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious God. You are with us even when it feels as we are alone. Father, I pray that 
Through this time, your presence will be made known. And you would shatter our mentality to stay in and only talk to people we're comfortable about because you are for everyone. And that is great news. We love you, Lord. Amen.